the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good uh, on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you've chosen to join us today. Uh, we're excited to be together from 4 to 6 every day right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Or online, you can find us at 1160hope.com. Uh, or on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. Rate or subscribe, rate, review, all of that stuff. So, uh, how are you today, man? Good to be together. Yeah, yeah. It finally feels like summer. Yeah. No. I wish people could see us right now wearing the same color shirt. Why would you out us like that? It's like now. Now I think we've been together too long. It's like six months next week. That's a serious relationship we're in right now. <laughs> Should I have brought you flowers or something? Next week. Oh, flowers next, next week. week. Okay. Yes, yes. For our six-month, you know, uh, radioversary. Okay, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Let's be honest. Neither of us thought we were making it six I months. Just... <laughs> I mean, I, I thought we would. Okay. Okay. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I don't know. Over the last two nights, did you watch any of the first of the debates, the Democratic national debates that took place? Uh, I could not watch any of them, but I have heard snippets here and there. And I want, yeah, I'm going to take a deeper dive this weekend to listen to them in their entirety. Uh, yeah, I think I think I need to. I think I want to. I, you know, we don't have cable at our house, so you know, I'm like getting snippets, snippets and pieces it. on online, and I, I. I wish that I had just an opportunity, you know, because I got babies waking up and stuff. And it's kind of like, I'm yeah. going to take a deep dive over the weekend. And maybe uh, maybe on Monday, I could speak a little more intelligently to it. I actually think that I don't want to watch them. And that's not a Democrat versus Republican thing. I actually don't think I want to watch. Really? I, I, and I, I was trying to think about why, because I was watching TV last night. And there was part of me that was like, I could watch the debate. And all of a sudden I was like, I really don't want to. And I don't huh. know if it's like, personally, I don't like debates like just. Uh, Are you like a conflict avoiding guy? That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> there's those uncomfortable even if, even if it's moments. Not your conflict? Yes, there's those uncomfortable. Mo- I don't like movies where there's uncomfortable oh, moments. Really? I don't. I, I don't. love that. And uh, but also, I like. I just don't tend to learn much in them. And mm. um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But there were some things that stood out. Uh, one of the guys, I think it was two night, the first night. Did you hear him? Did you hear in the snippet where he used the phrase? I believe now we've started talking about abortion as reproductive justice. Yeah, yeah, that felt a little. Uh, that felt like a next step to me. Mm. I don't know how so. Reproductive justice. Yeah, like that just. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just new terminology, but to put the killing of babies, my opinion, in the in under the umbrella of justice, uh, feels a little. Uh, 
antithetical. It feels a little bit uh, contrary. <laughs> Nothing about killing babies feels justice or for justice. And I understand where the other side is coming from. But sure. um, but yeah, I, do you think when you watch the debate, you'll learn anything you didn't know? Yeah. Do you think they're productive? Do you think they're helpful? I think so. I don't know that I'll necessarily learn what they intended for me to learn. Okay. I think what I what I often pick up on has far less to do with what they say and more with how they respond to each other. I think uh, I think oh, you can learn about, about that. I think you can learn about someone's character and how they respond under pressure, the the way they speak to each other. Um, and that's maybe. I mean, it's a it's a very controlled environment in general. So you're not getting a real sense of. It's like any job interview. You're right. You can't fake being a great person for a 30 minute job interview. Right. Like, right. What What are you doing? So I mean, I I, I realize it's televised and it's ma- everyone's put on their Sunday best and blah blah blah. But I do think um, it it's worth at least for me it's worth seeing. And, and you know, how, what do we have? Forty nine candidates right now for the Democratic. Like, it's just it's if if they all would vote for the same candidate, they'd have a landslide. Like yeah. it's just so many of them. But I I actually am really interested in the the interpersonal relating to them because you can go online and read about their positions and policies. Yep. And you can find all of their ads anywhere that you want. What you can't really manufacture, though, is, oh, how do they actually interact in a room together? For me, I would love I would love if a decade down the road, it was less like podiums on a stage and it's more uh, they all go out for beers and then (laughs) and we just happen to film it. And it's them just talking about what they care on both sides. I think that would be so much more compelling. Like what if they, you know, group them in groups of three and they were someone sort of moderating time. But you just had a conversation about what you cared about. Let it get heated if it needs to. Let them disagree. Um, but this whole, I don't know, sometimes it just feels, again, on both sides, like a lot totally. of grandstanding, a lot of um, political theater, which I can't lie, is a little bit entertaining. And I I do still think you'll learn something, but again, maybe yeah. not in the ways that they're intending. <laughs> I think what's oh, what's really interesting, and it's, again, both sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, last run, it was Republican debates. This run, it will be Democrat debates because, right. of you know, Donald Trump's going to be the incumbent the same way. Uh, oh, no, there were Democrat debates last year. What am I talking about? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what's always weird to me is like they know what they have to say for their base. Right. Uh, so like last night or the last two nights, it felt like everything's free. We're going to cancel everything. Like they know what they've got to do to right. kind of go way just the same way I felt like the Republican debates in 2016. Yeah. It was like, of course I love God and I love guns and I love this. And that guy <laughs> doesn't love guns as much as I do. And you're like, okay, I get it. Like, let's reminds me of the article we looked at earlier this week where it's like, you know, most people are more down the middle. Yeah. Right, and uh, right. that's why it is. That's, I think that's also why I don't watch. They just frustrate me. Cause you're like, I don't know that I can trust anything that you're saying at the moment. That's kind of what I mean by observing how they interact with one another because they all, you know, hopped on Twitter afterwards. You can follow them there. And that again is a, that's yep. a uh, curated space. You're not getting a real sense, but there is something about observing the way someone's face contorts, listening to somebody else. Mm-hmm. That is like the most honest, real transparent version, at least that maybe we'll get to see. Yeah. Twitter is still being curated. I mean, we, you know, some people are more restrained in Twitter than others. Uh, campaigns are obviously like very carefully curated and arranged and edited, but like just on a stage, 10 people, someone says something walkie, someone else rolls their eyes or they scoff or their face turns in. like that to yeah. me is the real, like, Oh, we don't get a whole lot of that with them together. Yep. And I find, I don't know. I find that interesting. I find people's interactions really interesting. And sometimes I watch these 
these debates, and I think, oh, they're they are still just people too. Yeah, right. We elevate them to this this incredible uh, degree in our minds sometimes, and I think, oh, you still get really frustrated when people say hurtful things about you, though, and yeah. that's interesting to me. Do you remember years ago? So it would have been in what ninety two when uh, Bush Senior ran against Clinton, I believe. Yeah, and uh, the biggest deal was that George Bush looked at his watch. Yes. Like kind of wishing it would be over. Right. Yeah. And that people, they picked that apart forever and was kind and of. And he claims that's not point. at all what he was doing. I know. At all. But it's just like you said, when a camera's on you. Yeah. Speaking of cameras, and I, this would have been terrible, but tell me it wouldn't have been at least funny political theater uh, or reality TV to, if someone had had a, uh, a television camera on Donald Trump watching the Democratic debates going. I mean, we got his we got his thoughts on Twitter enough. But could did. you imagine if there had been two cameras? I would watch that. I would have watched that. It would have been it would have been the best reality TV <laughs> moment. Just a of static all. shot on him. You would have to think ten times people would have watched that one rather than watched. It's like you know, uh, it's like when uh, you watch those shows where it's people commenting on what they're watching. It would have been fascinating. <laughs> But who do we got to who do we got to propose that to? I'm sure he proposed it. <laughs> you think he wanted the TV show of him watching the debates? 100 <laughs> percent. No, no. You don't think so? No, I don't. Oh, I think he would have done that in a heartbeat because <laughs> he knows people would have watched it. Anyway. Make it happen. Well, we're off and running here. We're glad you're joining us on The Common Good on AM 1160. We're going to keep in the political sphere coming up next. We're going to talk about an article out of Christianity Today. That talks about what psychology can offer Christians amidst the political polarization of our time. That's Mm -hmm. next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you're joining us today. You can always find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com, uh, or you can find our podcast wherever it is you find our podcast. You know, I think we learned yesterday, I think we knew this, but like you can listen at 1160hope.com. You can listen to us live. There's an app. You got, there's all sorts of ways to get us. That was pretending to not know. I don't think I'm aware of these. For the Facebook I just Live. Come. Do you not listen to Facebook Live at all or to the live stream on the website? I do, but we've never talked about it. Oh, yeah, I we've got never you. never really talked about it. I got Text you. Text us, 68683 as well, 68683. Uh, well, we are, <laughs> it feels like we're in the middle of the next presidential election season when then you realize how far away it is and it's really discouraging. <laughs> like, it's not that far away. I mean, it, a year and a half? Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a This is how lot. it is every time, though, isn't it? It feels <laughs> it's not, like it's, it's more new. now. It feels like it's more now. Why do you think it, why does it feel like it's more now than usual? I just, it's, I think it's, I think maybe I'm paying attention to it more, or maybe it's just mm. the culture we live in now where it's like, it's just so, it feels so slimy and they're all just <laughs> yelling at each other. It hasn't and, always been slimy, you don't I think? I know. I think, to, I, I think I'm legitimately asking. I don't know. There's just something, it, it feels like it was always like at the, the bottom rung and now we're at a, one rung lower than the bottom deeper, like we're, we're a, sub, a sub-zero rung. It feels like we've gone down a little further. But with that in mind, Christianity Today released an article uh, just last week uh, entitled this, What Psychology Offers Christians Amid Political Polarization? So again, let me read that for you. What, what psychology offers Christians amid political polarization? It begins like this. Unprepared for all the political drama after the 2016 election, a number of churches split up over disagreements on whether Christians should support President Trump or not. As we face the 2020 election, the pressure to choose a side remains intense. Recent Demogra- uh, Democratic candidates have called for the establishment of a, quote, religious left to defeat, quote, the religious right. 
Groups like Red Letter Christians vehemently denounce anyone who supports President Trump as abandoning Jesus and part of a toxic Christianity. And then it goes on to say that the church tension is also part of a natural tension, national tension. And before getting to their solution to this or what they bring up, I guess I would start by you as a pastor, me as a pastor. Do you feel this rift even within your own church? Not splitting the church, but do you feel this tension and this rift even within your own church? Nah, we're all kumbaya right (laughs) now, man. We just, we start and end every service holding hands and uh, we're all just getting a lot of potlucks. A lot of high fives. I'm going with sarcasm here. Uh, I should hope so. Yeah, I think um, in general, the tension is much more pronounced online than it is in person. True. That's what always surprises me, that sometimes people that I see interact in our lobby on Sundays are so kind and lovely to people that I know they disagree with. And then you hop on their Facebook page. You're like, wow, you're a very different person here. Like, (laughs) You're mean. It's very straight up mean. Not even just that I disagree, but like. Wow, your methodology is very different than what you what you give off in person. And I, the other thing that's surprising is that um, some of that disparity uh, catches me off guard because the in person like care and cordiality doesn't seem fake. It seems really yes. legitimate. So I'm like, so it's not like oh they're this fake happy on Sundays and then they show who they really are on Facebook. I think it's actually the other way around. I think oh when you're around people looking them in the eyes, I think that's more true of who you. Mm. Really are, and then we get you know kind of in these these vacuum spaces yes. where like I can say whatever I want, and then it kind of spins out of control a little that's, bit. That's very true. Psychology this uh, goes on to say explains this political polarization as an effective groupthink. Put in a position of us versus them, people will strongly side with those who think and act like themselves and want nothing to do with the other side. This creates a spiraling effect, which further widens the us versus them gap. So. This goes every right. These are the people who only watch Fox News or only watch MSNBC, only interact with people in their own tribe. And, and it spirals. And this uh, gets this is we talk about this all the time. And so uh, you begin demonizing the other side. So here's the solution. And interestingly, uh, and I think why Christianity Today is writing about this is that the solution is very Christian. It's very biblical, I should say says a key mitigator to this hostility between groups is intellectual humility, a term psychologists broadly define as, quote, recognizing that one's beliefs and opinions might be incorrect, Uh, close quote. And so basically what it's saying is to get away from this polarization and this demonizing of the other side, you need to have every now and then think that your opinion uh, could be wrong or that their opinion might have some validity. It goes back to what we talked about. Uh, I think yesterday where we were talking about uh, every now and then have a conversation with somebody uh, from uh, I'm using quotes, the other side sure. <laughs> having conversations. How does this strike you? This, uh, this uh, intellectual humility. Yeah. It goes on to say that uh, this kind of humility may be particularly applicable to this contemporary moment, but humility has been integral to the Christian faith. We believe mm-hmm. in a God, who humbled himself to the point of death, Philippians 2. Jesus taught us to think of others before ourselves, also Philippians 2. says, despite the infancy of studying this concept formally, psychology has already pointed to the importance of intellectual uh, humility in social interactions around hot-button topics. One study suggested that participants with greater intellectual humility spent more time trying to understand views with which they disagreed and also were more likely Mm. to accurately assess their own knowledge on obscure topics. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, they behave nicer in the public sphere. 
people tend to like them more. They're more open to disagreements. Like it literally makes them more uh, physiologically capable of engaging with opinions other than their own, which yeah. I feel like is an important skill for all of us to grow in. But this idea of intellectual humility is ironic because it's saying it's also, it tends to be people who have the most education that tend to be able to, um, uh, they tend to struggle the most with this because yes. they end up being so sure of their own conclusions yep. before ever interacting with anybody else. Yeah. And so uh, this biblical concept of humility in general, right? Like uh, Jesus, um, above, <laughs> he, he was the picture of humility. And uh, I do, I love this picture that this guy, that these psychologists are painting that this, uh, giving other people the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, just because somebody votes for uh, a, a D rather than an R or vice versa, doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad person. Uh, and I don't know, social media, I, sometimes I think I put too much on social media, but this does feel like one area where social media has really um, kind of, it's kind of been like pouring gasoline on a fire a little bit. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what you think is the solution to that. Like how, how do you encourage people to grow in intellectual humility? Uh, I think you can only grow yourself. Like I, it'd be one thing to be like, Hey, we've got to change this as a culture. That's never going to happen. And, and so I guess what I would want to say is if, if you uh, struggle with this demonizing of the other side or whatever, like maybe take the step to go have a conversation with somebody who doesn't support Donald Trump or who does support Donald Trump or who doesn't support X or doesn't support Y. I think you can make changes in your own life that will bring you to become more intellectually humble uh, as opposed to us being like, wow, we have to change as a culture. I think our culture is moving <laughs> away from intellectual humility. So I don't know. How would you answer that? Uh, I'm going to answer by reading more from this article. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it says, true, the Bible commands us to care for the poor and oppressed and to welcome the stranger from another land. Also true, the Bible commands us to defend the value of life and sanctity of marriage. Also important, though, Christians are commanded to demonstrate God's love in their love for one another so that in our unity, the world would know God. How are we doing this? Um, uh, as we meditate between opposing political parties and ends by saying when it comes to whom we should vote for in the 2020 election, the recent surge in intellectual humility research echoes a resounding biblical call to humility. Mm. If we transcend partisanship in the upcoming election in service of loving one another, we will ultimately demonstrate God's love, which again, way easier said than done, yep. but a really, really important call. And I'd love that if somebody ran on the platform of humility right now, I'd be hard pressed not to vote. For them. Be, if in the debate last night, someone just got up and said, I'm going for humility. Yeah, good, good. Uh, well, this is not going to be the last time we talk about this, right? Because this election season is only going to get faster here. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea here is to evaluate yourself as it comes to this. You can find this article at Christianity Today. We'll also uh, put this up on our Facebook site. Well, coming up next, each week we talk to somebody from Focus on the Family. And uh, we're going to do that next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, each and every week, we are we have the pleasure of being joined by various people from Focus on the Family. And uh, this afternoon, uh, we have the privilege of being joined on phone on the phone by Joni DeBrito. Uh, she is the Director of Parenting for Focus on the Family. Joni, thank you so much for joining us today. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, oftentimes you guys will send us articles or other stuff and a fascinating one that came our way and a sad one and that we would love for you to react to as the director of parenting over there at Focus on the Family. It has to do with the actress Lexi Rabe, I believe her name is, uh, from yes. Avengers Endgame, a movie many, many people obviously have seen. Uh, and and she was a seven-year-old actress uh, in Avengers Endgame. And recently, her and her parents have been talking about how the fact that she, as a seven-year-old, has been dealing with a good amount of cyberbullying uh, after this movie came out. And I guess I would just start by, does that surprise you? Uh, as somebody who deals with parenting and with kids, uh, what did that do when you read about that and heard about that? Well, you know, first of all, I thought about it on a personal level because I'm a grandparent Mm. of a six-year-old grandson and a four-year-old granddaughter. So my six-year-old grandson is almost seven, and I just can't imagine how hurtful that would be for him and his parents if someone was cyberbullying him. But my second reaction was kind of probably what your reaction was, which was, really? Even a seven-year-old can't escape cyberbullying. I wish I could say that I'm shocked, but I'm not. Cyberbullying is something that's becoming far more common because the internet allows a place for people to express their unfiltered thoughts without any accountability and not um, having to see what the reaction is of the other person that they're bullying. Yeah, right. Do you, do you think that celebrities are for some reason more susceptible to bullying? If that's the case, why do you, why do you think that is? Well, I think it is true that they do tend to be a little bit more susceptible because their lives are so public. And I think also that there is a lot of jealousy and envy, and certainly cyberbullying is often fueled by jealousy and envy. So it's a little bit, if you were to get in the head of someone who's doing that, they'd say, well, wow, you have a really charmed, privileged life. I'm going to find everything that I can to criticize about you and try to bring you down, which is really an unfortunate way to think about things. But I think that is why people tend to go after celebrities first. Yeah, and I'm wondering, uh, so I've got a, a daughter who is in high school, and I have two do- a daughter and a son in elementary school. And uh, what kind of advice do you give to parents both to how to help their kids navigate this online world while at the same time not trying to put them in a bubble and remove them from, you know, the way that our world is going? What are some pieces of advice for parents out there that you would give? Sure. Well, first of all, I always try to think of the from the standpoint of prevention. So if there are things you can do to prevent your child from being uh, cyberbullied, that's where we want to start. So in that realm... We really encourage parents to be very open and honest with their kids and to have that ongoing dialogue about what's going on online, not specifically necessarily addressing cyberbullying initially, but just talking about what are your friends talking about, what kinds of conversations do you have, do you have any concerns, etc. And then really encouraging a child's strengths and passions so that they start pouring into the right parts of uh, the online world, and they are able to develop healthy online relationships. Having boundaries, setting guidelines for technology use. Parents, you have got to be monitoring what's going on on uh, your kids' internet sites and Mm -hmm. so forth. And then also accountability, letting your child know that it's part of your job to check in. And it's really helpful if this is done from the standpoint of, 
we're here to team up with you, be a part of your life. We want to be involved. We care about you as opposed to we're trying to watch you and catch you. So we yeah. don't want it to be a punitive measure, but more of a protective measure. And then if there is some cyberbullying going on, um, sometimes you can teach them to use humor as a way to diffuse the situation. That, of course, is more likely to be helpful for uh, upper elementary, middle school, teenage, certainly not seven-year-old kids. For yeah, seven-year-olds, right. I think you kind of have to do what these parents did, which was to step in and make an appeal on her behalf. Mm. Um, rehearse with them. If you're bullied online, what are some things that you can do? Where can you go to get help? If it happens to be bullying, more typically it's bullying that's happening by a peer at school. So help them understand that they can go talk with a counselor at school or talk with a teacher or someone and let them know, here's what's going on, I need some help. And also that there are other adults, help them identify other adults in their lives, friends, neighbors, family members, um, teachers, etc., that might be good people to talk to. And to recognize that what goes around comes around. Mm -hmm. So you also have to be aware that if your child is bullied, it's more likely that he or she may reach out and bully someone else uh, as yeah. well. That's right. a pretty normal human reaction, right? Someone does something to yeah. us, and we're told to turn the other cheek, but um, our human nature is to fight back. And so I'm always really, uh, I, I'm very intentional about telling parents that all kids need parents because kids make a lot of mistakes hmm. and they need parents to help correct them. And, uh, you know, it's not unusual that I will hear from parents that are so sad because not only has their child been bullied, but they've also noticed that their child has starting some started some bullying behavior as well. So you have to watch for that and start guiding them back on track and helping them understand how those unkind words really affect people. Hmm. Well, and you mentioned some of that proclivity to fight back, too. Sometimes we see this in adulthood, right? Someone who's got a really mean boss, they don't take it out on the boss, but they come home and they take it out on the kids or the dog or something like that. Right. You'd mentioned earlier this, uh, this idea of diffusing with humor. I'm wondering if you could mm -hmm. talk a little more about that or maybe give an example or two, because my guess is that'll be helpful not only for kids, but probably also uh, adults listening who are feeling like in some way in their workplace or whatever, they're getting bullied as well. Like how, how would you encourage uh, people listening to diffuse with humor? Yeah, I, I think that um, it's hard to say a specific statement. I wish I could think of one off the top of my head, but I've seen people use it masterfully. I've definitely seen people, um, for instance, who are being bullied in person um, where someone makes a very nasty comment about them and they laugh at themselves and mm. say, yeah, that's something that I really like about myself. That's my favorite quality. And a lot of people <laughs> like that in me as well. And that's walk good. away. You know, bullies want to see a reaction. And if you don't give them the reaction that they're looking for, which is I'm scared, I'm afraid, you've intimidated me, you're basically telling that bully, aha, that worked. I just gave you what you wanted, and so that's fuel for more. I grew up with three older brothers, <laughs> so you can kind of figure this out. Right. One of them in particular really liked to tease his little sister, and uh, we had lots of animals in our house when I was a kid, and um, one of the animals we had quite a lot of because we lived right next to a woods were snakes. 
You know, and after about the fifth time that my brother threw a snake at me, I realized <laughs> the joy that he got out of seeing me frightened. And so I decided I was going to befriend the snakes. And one time he <laughs> threw a snake at me. These are little garter snakes, yeah. not, you know, boa constrictors. But he threw a snake at me, and I actually caught it midair, and I said, Great catch, Joni. And that was it. Never again did my brother ever do that. So, you, you know, you can diffuse by allowing it to kind of roll off your back. But obviously, if it's bullying that is consistent and persistent and yeah. goes on over and over and over, it's got to be addressed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to Joni DeBrito. Uh, De, uh, De the director of yeah. parenting for focus on the family, just some great words about how to deal with bullying. Um, and r- as a reminder, real fast focus on the family with Jim Daly can be heard every morning here at 1130 AM Monday through Friday here on AM 1160. Joni, thank you so much. This was great. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. I had enjoyed talking with you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Yep, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online at 1160hope.com. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment, and you can always... Uh, listen to our podcast as well. If you are a podcaster, uh, we would ask that you subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. As we like to say, it helps us somehow. We're not quite sure, but it makes even, our podcast even if easier you're not a podcaster. We would encourage you to begin podcast. We should start having a competition, like of uh, I don't know what it would be, but that's uh, just a, if we reach a certain, statement. If we, we reach a certain number of subscribers, then we. How many subscribers do we have right now? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of missing pieces for this competition right now. It's it's going in my head. I got it. I if got we it. get more than we have right now, if we we'll can, keep doing the show. We don't know if we have a thousand or ten. But if we get one more, <laughs> we'll continue. Uh, it was uh, I often talk. You've talked to about a pastor by the name of Pastor Matt Chandler uh, down at the Village Church in Texas, and uh, I've told you before that. I don't listen to a ton of sermons online on podcasts, but when I do, he's usually the first one I listen to Uh, Chandler. He had a prolific um, college ministry down there, and then he took over a church. He was asked to lead a church of 150 people, and that church is now upwards of multiple campuses at, you know, 12, 15,000 people or something. So it seems like ministry wise Everything he touches is kind of gold, right? Like he goes to all the conferences. He's always bigger, all this kind of stuff. When you could lay up what our culture kind of calls a, you're seeing air quotes from me, a successful pastor. uh, It's kind of him. And uh, that's why this struck my eye, this article, this blog written. um, And the title of it is this on being Matt Chandler's roommate. And so it is written Uh, by a guy by the name of Steve Besner. And Steve Besner is a pastor of a church in Houston. He's got all these degrees. Uh, He's got a very successful uh, career. Uh, But in college, he was roommates with Matt Chandler. And this article, man, is is fascinating. I don't know if anyone else will find it fascinating, but I (laughs) found it fascinating. (laughs) He writes, it starts this way. This is a story about two young men who were friends, roommates, and pastors. In other words, this is a story about jealousy. 
dun, dun, dun. Like, what a cool start. Like, well written start. And he then goes on to, to trace uh, how he had been uh, at their college, their small Christian college in Abilene, Texas. Matt Chandler transfers in and is just like, he becomes magnetic, right? And uh, he's given all this responsibility. He takes over these ministries. People are asking him to do stuff. And his friend, his good friend here, Steve, is talking about how uh, how over time he just became really jealous of his friend, Matt Chandler. And it keeps going. Chandler, uh, if you know his story, Chandler gets like really bad uh, brain cancer. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a really good brain cancer. He yeah, gets, not like the enjoyable kind. Yes, right. He gets really bad brain cancer and uh, kind of miraculously kind of came out the other side of it. Wasn't given much chance to live, but is now doing well. And... Uh, his friend here writes this in the midst. Uh, oh, he says he being Chandler may have had brain cancer, but I was the one who was sick because mm. in the midst of my secret jealousy, Matt remained my friend. He encouraged me and he prayed for me. That's the thing. Matt's the real deal. He's not different from the pastor that's on the platform. He truly loves the Lord that much. And then he tells the story that finally one day they're talking like buddies on the phone and he finally admits to being jealous. And he says this was a turning point moment. He admits to his buddy, Matt Chandler, I'm jealous of all that you have. I'm envious of you. And he said everything changed with the next line that Chandler said to him. He said, that's funny because there are days when I envy you. And it was like this mutual kind of admitting, like, I kind of envy your life. I like what you've got over there. And uh, man, uh, the, the author then goes on to talk about the spiritual disease of comparison. And he quotes Teddy Roosevelt to say, comparison is the thief of joy. And so all that to say, when I read this, bud, I was like, man, I struggle with this. I struggle with as a pastor uh, of getting envious and jealous and, and kind of looking at the grass being greener on the other side with someone else, what they might have. I just really appreciated this guy's words. Do you find that you get more jealous of people outside your church that do the same kind of work or does it, is it broader than that? Like, I went to high school with that guy and now he's a now he's a broker and he makes, you know, 10 times what I make or or is it more ministry specific? No, I really think it's ministry. It's almost exclusively ministry. So, specific so it's not necessarily me. like, oh, I grew up on the same block as that guy and he's got eight cars now. Nope. That, that doesn't nope, hit you is. in the same way. It is from the outside. That guy is a more successful pastor than me. <laughs> why do you think that is? Why do you think I that is? The, well, let's mine that because that's because a lot. Of, I think the, I think there's insecurity in that, and there's but no, there could be insecurities about salary amounts. Those, yeah. That whole E Trade campaign, right? About uh, somebody making a bunch of money, and then it, the caption was something like, "That guy got an F in the same math class you got an A in." <laughs> Don't be jealous. Get E Trade or whatever. Like yeah. the sti- the typical jealousies tend to be money, notoriety, house. And car, right? Like yep. that's maybe more <laughs> traditionally masculine, but yep, yep. You're, you're saying those actually don't bug you nearly as much as perceived ministry success, correct? Which shows, at least to me, that for you, a lot of the envy is rooted much less in the material wealth or possessions, and much more how you deem someone as being successful in this vocation that you care a lot about. It's good. It's good. Man, we're that, gonna, I don't know. We're it's true. I'm just, I'm just. I think I'm it's true. I thought. I also think it highlights a little bit of where my insecurities lie. I'm not very insecure as as a dad. Like I feel like a good dad. Yeah, you just came I'm back on this very, trip from California. Know, and you're home with your daughter. Like, I'm, I'm not very. It. I'm not real insecure as a husband. Like I mess up, but I'm. I feel pretty good as a husband. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy my life in mm. general. Mm. I think I've got some insecurities of like, am I a good enough pastor? Am mm. I doing enough? Are we 
Uh, am I missing something? Wow, why is that guy's church, you know, X or why? Why is it growing faster? Why are they? I was going to ask, what is X? Is it usually growing? I think it is, and I'm, yeah. I'm the first to be like, we shouldn't measure churches by number of people <laughs> in the seats or number because we've all seen why that's right. dangerous. Still do it, right? And uh, well, what you just said is interesting because you said the question isn't if I'm good, it's if I'm good enough. Yeah, I think so. so. It's not, you're not wrestling with am I a bad pastor? You know that you're not a bad one. The one which I think is almost easier Most to parse, days. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that almost is an easier battle to win, though. The good yeah. enough battle, I think, is much sneakier and much harder to go after because how do you measure that? How do I measure yeah. if I'm good enough at this thing that I've like traded my life for? Yeah. That you you're not only passionate about it, but you you know you also want it to succeed. Yeah, I think there's also the insidious nature of like how we as in the evangelical world make people like uh, celebrities, right? Like yeah. uh, Matt Chandler's buddy probably felt this way not only because he had a big church, but because he saw his buddy speaking wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, at all these big places. And there is that I bet you everybody feels this in their jobs in different ways, but in our profession, if you're not careful, it's gosh, how do I get that stage? How yeah. do I get that notoriety or that book deal or something? Even though, you know, like if Chandler's probably like, you don't want my life at times and, and like, yeah, give it to me and let me decide it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a struggle for you at all? Uh, I think in, in maybe different ways, but I, you know, my, <laughs> I, I, I struggle in so many areas. It's hard to keep track of sometimes. But, <laughs> um, I I think I'm getting more and more like I saw a Scott Saul's tweet the other day that really resonated and he said you're welcome Pla- yeah thanks <laughs> words of affirmation yeah, right? there you um, go. <laughs> he said uh, platform is overrated kindness is not mm, I did see that one that and was good. and one of the blessings I think is you know being a part of community which is also part of exponential and new thing is mm-hmm. you get to meet a lot of people that you know maybe you've really looked up to for a while and sometimes they're incredibly kind people and sometimes. Not so much. And mm. and I'm realizing even side by side, even some of the people with the biggest platforms also have even bigger hearts. And I think that gives me a lot of hope that, oh, regardless of whatever that I do think platform is overrated, yep. to be honest, I, as I speak into a radio mic. Like, I totally get <laughs> the irony of saying that yeah. in an environment like this. But I do think God has faithfully and patiently called us. Uh, to love whatever context he's put us in. And, you know, Agreed. in nine or 10 minutes, we can talk about how don't be jealous. And some of us are sitting there saying, well, I'm still jealous. Yep. Like that's real. But um, I think the more and more that we realize just how much has been given to us in Christ in the first place, the less likely we are to like grip onto our uh, jealousies. That's good. That's good. I, I, I'd be curious if other people wrestle with this in other professions or if you wrestle with it more uh, around family or whatever it might be. We would love to hear your feedback at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, or online, or, or you can text us at 68683. Well, coming up next, I think for the first time ever, we're going to talk about Carrie Underwood. So, <laughs> Is that the first time? I would guess so, probably. Somebody could correct us on that, but I'm excited. Let's have a conversation about Carrie Underwood. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can... 
Find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. You can text us at 68683. Uh, you can find our podcast on, what did we decide yesterday? Google Play? Apple Podcast. We didn't decide that. That's just <laughs> true. <It> just, <laughs> we deemed it. We created Google Play. What did we decide the truth was? Apple Play? Apple Podcast? No, you got to write the first time. Google, Google Play, Play, Apple Podcast. No, I'm going to keep getting that wrong. Do you want me to write this down for nope, you somewhere? Nope, put it up on the wall. Just boom. But yeah, go there. Subscribe, rate, review. Tell your friends. And uh, unsubscribe, resubscribe. Keep doing all of that. I don't think that does anything. Try to game the system. I don't think that works. I think it does. You just found out what Google Play was. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that you have inside information on how to game that system. That is the most valid point you've made all day, right? There. Thank you. Thank that you very that, much. Speaking of that. Carrie Underwood. <laughs> so Carrie Underwood, uh, there was a, a great interview the other day in which Carrie Underwood, if you don't know who that is, she's a Grammy Award winning country music artist. Uh, she oh, she was, was just, also an American Idol winner. She was, yes. Do you remember that season, season no. four? That's when I used to watch American Idol. Of all the seasons, now my kids have started watching American Idol again, but of all the seasons, yeah. it's the only one that I've watched where literally from like episode two, you went, oh, that's the person who's going to win. It was the most foregone conclusion when Carrie Underwood was no on. No kidding. She was so much better than every <laughs> other, every season there's always some intrigue. Right, like, they're right, good, right. but they're good. Episode this, two, you're like, nope. The season Carrie Underwood <laughs> did it, you're like, nope. Plan for second now, people. Plan Did everyone for know that? Was it like, hey, we got to keep, we got to do a whole season. They wouldn't say it. They wouldn't say it, but you could tell. <laughs> uh, everyone was kind of like, oh, Carrie Underwood. This yeah. will be fun. Uh, and so she just got named to what is a really cool list to be named to. People Magazine's list of 100 reasons to love America. I didn't, didn't even know that was a list. <laughs> I think the common good was number 74 on that list. Oh, was it? Oh, <laughs> we made it. So she gave this interview along in People Magazine with all of this. And, or no, this was with CBS. And in it, she testified on how her faith in God helped her get through three recent miscarriages. So you look at somebody like Carrie Underwood, you're like, man, you've got everything all together. She's married to a guy by the name of Mike Fisher, I believe, who just retired from the NHL. And they have a four-year-old, but they've been trying to have another kid. And they had all of these miscarriages, three miscarriages in a row, which to do that is just so painful. But when you're in the public eye like this... Uh, it's got to be that much more painful. She suffered three consecutive miscarriages in 2017 and 2018. And so this this interview uh, becomes a lot about how did they kind of keep going? We want you to hear 30 seconds of what Carrie Underwood said. Because we are so blessed. And my son, Isaiah, is the sweetest thing. And he's the best thing in the world. And I'm like, if we can never have any other kids that's okay because he's amazing and I have this amazing life like really what can I complain about I can't I have an, an incredible husband incredible friends an incredible job an incredible kid can I be mad no and I got mad uh, which is just a fascinating thing there right she's like uh, you know she's kind of saying all oh, the rest of my life is good but but I got mad about this which totally makes sense one more background obviously you get it from there Carrie Underwood is a, is a very professed uh, follower of Jesus. Um, and so uh, here's one of the things, uh, one of the takeaways from this article that I want you to respond to. She says, Carrie Underwood says the best moments of her life are when she surrenders to God. And I guess that phrase stuck out to me because I had my first thought was, especially if I wasn't a believer, but even as a believer, what does that really mean? When we talk a lot about surrendering to God. You know what I'm saying? Like surrender and give my, give it all to God, do this. 
I guess if somebody who wasn't a Christ follower asked you, like, I don't understand what you guys mean when you say surrender to God. How would you work them through that? Well, I, I think first, I probably wouldn't say only that in the first place gotcha. for someone to ask, because I think uh, surrender is only part of the story. I think to be a Christian is to be a Christ follower, to mm. be a disciple, to be an apprentice. I think uh, we have, I think, abandoned a lot of those components yeah. where surrender is in some ways sort of our modern version of just pray a prayer, yeah. which we've spent a lot of time, you know, as the big C church kind of helping unpack that. It's not just that. So I, yeah, surrender, I think is a starting point. I think you have to wave the white flag first. And I, you know, if someone were to just come up to me and ask, I would say, um, <laughs> on the street, Hey, right, what's hey, it mean? What's <laughs> surrender to Christ? Well, where did you come from? Are, are, are we on the, the beach? Are we the beach of California? Right? <laughs> but, uh, this idea though, of like uh, opting out of the rat race. Yeah. I, I often talk about stepping off the treadmill, this, the surrender, the battle language, I don't think, really resonates with a lot of people. Where a lot of this surrender language kind of originated, uh, at least in the Western American church. But the idea of like, hey, do you feel like you're constantly in a hamster wheel of trying to be good enough or smart enough or holy enough or successful enough and it never quite succeeds in making you feel fulfilled or sure of your identity? Like, I think Jesus offers a better way. Yeah. Like that surrendering to me is a lot of that invitation to find rest in him. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that has to do a lot with our cultural proclivities or my proclivities to be honest. So I think that's often how I talk about it, but you know, cause surrendering doesn't mean that we don't still like fight against injustice. There's yep. still this fight in us. So sometimes this like let go and let God can also create a lot of lethargy in the, in the Christian church. Yep. Like, Hey, I'm just surrendered and okay. whatever God wants to do, he's going to do. And I'm like, okay, well, that would be fine if it weren't for the Bible, because there's <laughs> a whole lot about what we're called to do yeah. in light of this truth in light of this reality. So, you know, that's why I say that surrender, I think, is only half of the narrative. And there was another interesting part to her. And this is an impressive interview. Carrie Underwood is yeah, clearly an impressive person. So I don't mean to nitpick what she said. But I just think, <laughs> well, but I just think she's in the midst of she's talking about how painful it was. Right. And I think what she says is a lot of. It was less about being celebrity and it was more about being someone who's following Jesus, but right. you're just heartbroken. How do you do that? Right. And that's what I found interesting about it. And it says this, although she said she knew better and is truly committed to her Christian faith, the multiple tragedies led Underwood to have a heart to heart talk with God. Hmm. And the way that's put there is that she should have known better than to be angry with God and have a heart to heart. And she goes on to say the clip we listened to. I've always wanted to be a good daughter to my parents and this and that. I'm beyond blessed. What did I have to complain about? I'd say we had three miscarriages. That would make a person angry. Yeah. Pastor Ian Simkins, is it okay to get mad at God? Is it okay to have knockdown drag outs? Is it okay? Or is it, although she said she knew better and is committed to her faith, she still had a heart to heart with God. Not, not only do I think it's okay to I'm get mad at God. There, yeah. yeah. I think, I think in some ways the Bible lets us know it's welcome. Yeah. You know, like if a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, I think the psalmist tells us that God would rather we scream at him than walk away from him. Right. So mm. if you have a whole book called lamentations, you have Job and Jeremiah are saying things like, I wish I'd never been born. That's, that sounds like depression to me. It sounds like anger. Yeah. That sounds like God, where were you? God, what is happening? So this whole idea that like, well, I am really blessed. So I guess I don't have any room to complain while I can understand the sentiment. And there certainly are, Christians who are endless complainers that probably could stand to maybe like look at some of the, the blessings and gifts in their life. I don't, I don't think anything in the Christian tradition says, well, you need to just shove those feelings down and keep singing amazing grace because yeah. at least you're not going to hell. Like, I think we have to create spaces in our Christian communities where it's not just like, ah, we'll permit 
you to be upset where we say, no, I think God is upset at injustice. I think God is upset at the loss of life. I think his heart breaks when our hearts break. And I think to create a, a Christianity where that isn't the case is uh, is actually immensely dangerous. Yeah. And one more part of this of this interview that I just think is a little dangerous. She didn't say this. So this came from the article. It said after letting go and letting God take the reins of her life and future, sure. Underwood became pregnant and gave birth to a baby boy named Jacob, which we which we're happy about. Uh, but again, sometimes things don't work out like it doesn't always have a storybook ending like that. And that's that's what becomes hard. And I bring go ahead. I well, I was going to say the name Jacob means the deceiver, too. So that's uh, maybe there's some <laughs> subtext there that we're not aware. Of. And I bring all of this up. We bring this article up to say there are some of you out there who are really struggling and you're really angry. And we want to give you the license to cry out to God the way David did in the Psalms or the way you point out with the book of Lamentations or the book of Job or over and over again. Uh, we want to encourage you to cry out to God the way that it's modeled in the Bible and um, and there. Uh, God, God can handle our anger, right? God can handle our disappointments. And in fact, he invites them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we need to model that. Yes. Whether we're pastors or leaders or parents, I think that has to start somewhere. It can't just yep. be that we know that it's okay and we'll allow it when it happens, but to actually model for our kids and our communities and our neighborhoods and our churches that, um, yeah, I'm also sometimes grieved by the things that are happening in my life. And that's okay. There is a healthy I would even say worshipful way to do that. Yeah. So if you're in that pl- place and you need somebody to talk to, we would be glad to talk to you. Uh, hit us up by text. Uh, we're the only ones who see those texts. 68683. That's 68683. Uh, you can give us a call, Facebook, whatever else it might be. Well, coming up next, we're excited to have in studio uh, somebody who is a cultural, um, a cross-cultural worker in India and Indonesia by the name of Eric Dish. You're going to want to hear his story coming up next on The Coming Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you're joining us today. Remember, you could always follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Old shows online at 1160hope.com. And you can t- text us. Text us? You can, I thought you say you could tip us. Go ahead and hit that tip jar on the way out. You can text us. I speak for a living. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG followed by your comment. Well, uh, we always enjoy having having pastors in here and authors and other people. And so we are really thrilled to be joined right now uh, by Eric Dish. Eric is a cross-cultural worker in India and Indonesia. So, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to let you introduce yourself. So why don't you tell us a little bit of who you are, your family, what you do, uh, and then we'll go from there. Great. Um yeah, my name is Eric, and uh, my wife is uh, Jean Marie. We've been married for about twelve years. I think twelve years. That's why I say about close <laughs> enough. You want to get, it, it's you get the calculator out real quick? Well, then. hopefully she's not going to listen. Uh, I'm going to send it right. to I her. love her yes. very much. Yes, <laughs> for at um, least twelve years. <laughs> we uh, we have two boys. Uh, Noah is eleven. That I'm sure of. And <laughs> Samuel is seven. Um, and yeah, we've had the privilege of serving in India and, and North India since 2008, and then we transitioned out um, of that work in 2018 and into a um, pretty much uh, a different um, type of work in Indonesia for the last year. So we just finished up um, 
uh, 10 months there, and we're here in the States for a couple weeks. Right on. Yeah. So, so people listening may or may not be aware that I, I spent a summer in India after my undergrad. Uh, I feel like just a lot was done in my heart during those three months in a pretty pretty profound way. So that I'm sure that'll come up a little bit later. But I'm curious, even before that, how how did you get involved in this kind of work in the first place? I imagine some people listening are like, "That's the last thing that I want to do is to travel internationally or right. to be a part of something that looks different than what I'm used to." Like, how, where do you think that originated for you? Yeah, well. F- Funny thing is, uh, India was the last place on the planet I ever wanted to go. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, I mean, I mean, looking back now, I, I can see where um, cross-cultural work was a natural fit for me, um, and it's something that uh, the Lord was leading me to um, throughout my youth. I, I, I can see that now. Um, but when I had an opportunity to go overseas as a part of an uh, internship for um, my theological and Bible training hmm. um, I went with uh, an organization that was hopefully going to take me into Tibet and Nepal, actually. Oh, wow. I wanted to go to the Himalayan region of the world. Yeah. And just kind of the way things worked out, their contacts in India invited us, and um, we ended up spending two months in India and a month in Nepal. And I just I just knew in my heart, and I, I can't explain it any yeah, more than that, yeah. once, I, uh, once we touched down in the airplane in Delhi, I just like, had a it. sense that this is home. That's fascinating. Nope. Yeah. Once you touched down, you knew that. Oh, yeah. Even before yeah. you hadn't met anybody, you hadn't like no. gone and, wow, that's no. cool. I mean, yeah. during the passport and the, and the visa process, I had an option to get a six-month visa or a 10-year, and I felt like, okay, I'll do the 10-year, but it's like, ah, man, I'm, I'm not going to need go all back 10 here. of that. Yeah, <laughs> and then, you know, it turns it's out, over, is it? Yeah. there you go, yeah. yeah. So that was really uh, pretty amazing. That is incredible. Cool. I, I'm always curious uh, when you do this huge move and relocate, like, were you and your wife on the same page? Was she feeling the same thing? Like, it feels like that is ripe for a lot of tension and a lot of, yeah, a lot of, we'll call them marital discussions. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's nice. Interesting thing is um, when I met my wife, she, she wasn't a believer at all. Wow. Um, I was working as an associate pastor in a church and uh, we did a lot of things with the uh, community, um, park district, community yeah. programs. And so I met her through that and began to witness to her and ended up uh, working with a special needs kid during a summer camp, and she was my boss. Hmm. Um, and so Scandalous. Well, yeah, I won't get into details, but let's, let's just say... Uh, Christian station, come on. Right, right exactly. Um, but through that process, we actually developed a good friendship, and, hmm. and then um, her interest in the Lord just sort of blossomed and um she came to christ i say that to say um after that happened then uh within two years we were married had a baby no kidding and uh we're moving overseas wow uh and so i don't know that that's typical for anybody else (laughs) yeah right um so you know if you're listening i don't know that that's the uh protocol (laughs) but um for us that's how it worked i mean she knew my desire to live overseas and to especially India, yeah, even, right. even from the very first conversations we had, you know, because I was just so excited about, you know, anyone who would listen, I would, you know, talk to them about <laughs> India. Yes. Uh, so I think she kind of had a feeling uh, what she was getting into. And so, then we were able to take a short uh, trip yeah. after we were married, just a couple months or a month or so to kind of give her an idea. But uh, Nice. Yeah. Honeymooned in India. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and, more romantic than you might think, actually. I'm sure India, it is. India sure it is. has a huge part of my heart. But I'm curious, yeah. what, was, what was that first year there like? You know, you're a lot of firsts, a lot going on yes. just as a couple, as parents. What, what was that like experiencing everything that you were kind of at the same time 
both in your in your work, but in your marriage and your parenting? Like, how did that all kind of come together? Yeah, that was uh, it was tough. There was a lot of um, a lot of sleepless nights, uh, both of us. Yeah. Um, a lot of um, tears. Mm. You know, we we cried a lot. We did it together, which I think was uh, important. Yeah. Um, it was um, a lot of adjustment that. As much as we thought we were prepared, there's always things that you're not prepared for. Mm. Uh, just how different the culture is, and language, and the challenges that go with that. Um, but again, we we had that a strong foundation of friendship and vision of what it is we wanted to accomplish, mm. and in serving the uh, the Indian Church, serving that that particular ministry. And so I think we um, we sort of rallied around the vision that kind of served as a stake in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we never got too far from that. That's awesome. Um, yeah. What has it been like raising kids overseas? I'm guessing, you know, you don't see family very often. You've got schooling issues, culture yeah. issues. Just, I'm curious what that's been like. Yeah, that's been interesting. And it continues to be like. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Um, so it, I'll tell you a story. Maybe that'll, that'll illustrate. We, yeah. we took a little trip to Thailand um, when, uh, my son Noah was about seven, and uh, Samuel would have just, he wasn't around yet at that time. Um, anyway, so we were in the swimming pool in this little resort in Thailand, and um, we noticed this other American couple, and they were just kind of snickering and laughing <laughs> and looking at us. And so my wife and I are looking at each other like, what, are, what is their problem? <laughs> yeah. And so finally they said, um, are, you guys, are you guys working in India? We're like, yeah, Why? Because if we didn't turn around and see the little blonde head boy in the pool, we would think he was an Indian boy. Wow. The way that he's talking. Oh, and, and even when they were looking at him, you know, the, the mannerisms and everything. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, one of the dynamics of raising the kids over there is just kind of see how they just pick up on all the little nuances of right. language yep, and yep. interaction with the other uh, kids and the students in the school and um, it's really a neat thing. That's awesome. I think one of the, I don't know that I could still say, I think one of the first phrases I learned while I was there, uh, maybe I'll give it a shot. Here we go. I think it's, uh, which I I think was told means, you know, I can hear you. Right. Yeah. Like I, so I was used to everywhere. Cause I was by myself. Right. And there'd be, you know, they'd, they'd huddle and point and kind of snicker at me. And so I'd walk up to them. Right. Right. <laughs> and say, I can hear you. Right. I know what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the trick was I had to then walk away immediately. Because you right. know what else to say. I couldn't understand anything. Right. right. But I was doing it just right. to, man, now that I'm hearing it out loud, I was doing it just to mess with them, which right. is, you know, maybe not the best motive, but I'm, I'm curious what was that like for you? Because you're, you know, you're Caucasian right. in an environment probably that doesn't, you know, see a lot of Caucasian people like to that inform your interactions on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, quite a bit, actually. Really? We um, we were stared at a lot, and mm. um, people would come up and, you know, touch my bald head. You <laughs> just know? straight up touch uh, it? Just touch it or rub it, really. <laughs> I mean, it's... You're like, hi, um, I don't know you. Why are you touching me? Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm fighting the urge to do so right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, go ahead, but just, yeah. you know. He's got tattoos, Brian. There right. You know, there be, you be go. Careful. I stay in the chair over here. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'm not a small guy, so they're always like, you know, oh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I was like, yeah, don't, you know, <laughs> you know, give, give, thanks for the credit, but yeah, no, yeah. that's all right. Austin um, 316, yeah. Yeah, right. That's awesome. They would, you know, come and look at what we're shopping and reach in the cart and pull things out. No but, kidding. You know, it's just all part of it. It's, right. It's right. fun. So. And they're much more physical in general than we, you yes. know, like guys would come up and like hold my hand. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a very common yes. practice. I held more men's hands than 
I ever thought I would in my in my life. <laughs> John, can we make sure that gets tweeted? Yeah, yeah in fact, <laughs> that, that's something that I never tweeted. thought I would say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a handholder. Well, yeah, I may say so. I am. Deep down inside. <laughs> On that note, uh, we were you're listening to Eric Dish. We're excited to have Eric in studio with us. Him and his wife are cross cultural workers, both in India and Indonesia. Uh, and coming up next, Eric's going to stay with us, and we are going to continue. Uh, kind of this fascinating discussion of what it is like to raise a family and work overseas like that. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad that you're joining us today. Uh, we are continue to be joined by Eric Dish. Uh, Eric is a cross-cultural worker both in India uh, and in Indonesia. So we've been having a conversation of just what it is like to work overseas, raise a family overseas, what causes a person uh, to even want to go overseas. And, and off our conversation before, it just struck me, I'm curious, uh, what uh, is the hardest part? Uh, is it is it family? Is it community? Is it just you know, you're, things that are normal to you now? What's the hardest part of living uh, where you didn't grow up? I would say the the hardest part is um, coming back to the U.S., oh. um, not because um, it's hard to then go back overseas, but um, for me, I'm so focused in on our life cross-culturally, and that's yeah, right. been so much of uh, who I am, even as a husband, father, you know, minister, all yeah. those things, uh, has been in that context for so long that even just coming back, I find myself, you know, even though we're here for six weeks or whatever, mm. I find myself just like, well, who am I? Where, mm, you know, what right. is life That's all about? What, you know, right. what's going on? And so, um, when we're when we're working, when we're involved in in uh, community development or education, whatever aspect of the work we're involved in, um, uh, it, it that really just takes all the attention. That that yeah. you know, that's really the focus. And right. so, anything other than that is kind of hard for me personally to um to deal with that's interesting i imagine too because here i mean you you kind of just look like any other dude i imagine in most parts of india it's clear that something cross-cultural is happening right and so your kids have lived most of their lives in an environment other than here is that tough for them too because i imagine even you know anecdotally people their age probably don't realize that the culture that they're most familiar with is actually very different than the chicago suburbs yeah. Has that been has that been tough for them to sort of transition in and out of those environments? Yeah, I think um, so. Both of our kids were born here, and and we're here for the first year of their life. Got it. Okay. But so so they've lived overseas um, for the majority of their life. So the dynamic is that in one sense they didn't really know much else right. for a while. Right. Now they're getting older. They start to say like, oh, you know. America's pretty cool. Yeah. And so when we're here, they're like, well, I think, I think I'd really like to go to school here, dad, or move here. And then once we get back over there, they're like, no, 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 this, this is really who we are. This is what we're all about. No kidding. They're already thinking at that level. Yeah. Yeah. And they've really picked up language well. Hmm. Um, and they really have assimilated actually better than us in some ways, to be honest. As kids tend to, right? The brain just pick it up. Yeah. That's interesting. So So, so you said about a year ago, I think you said you, you went from India to Indonesia. That's another right. huge move. Right. Uh, walk us through that. What what precipitated that move? Yeah. So just in the same way that I I never thought I'd ever uh, be in India. I never. Once we were there, I, I never thought we'd leave. Yeah. Um, we were both just um, we just we had a life there and it was great. 
Um, and then we started to notice a few things um, with the kids. That, like I said, they're getting a little bit older. Yeah. They were in the school that my wife was working in, 1,200 students. They were the only non-Indian students there. Mm. Um, and they were starting to, the challenges were starting to get a little bigger, a little bit greater um, educationally and, and um, even socially. Yeah. So begin to really take notice of that. And, and then that kind of um, uh, prompted me to take a look at some things as well that had kind of been on my heart that I'd not really uh, paid attention to. And just really felt that the Lord was saying there's, there's going to be some change coming. Mm-hmm. And both my wife and I thought that was maybe just the nature of the work we were doing or yeah, something. Right. And we just began to realize that um, some other doors were opening up for us that would actually um, um, protect and preserve the longevity of cross-cultural work. And that mm-hmm. is more opportunities for the kids with school. And so uh, okay. um, I, I looked into um, an opportunity to be a chaplain at a, at an international school in Indonesia and nice. reached out and, and uh, we connected. And so uh, we made the move. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm curious, you said something a little earlier, how when you got to India, you thought you'd never leave, which yeah. was actually very similar to my experience. Yeah. I had just graduated and uh, pretty miraculously, this church had agreed to hold the position for me to allow me to have this summer experience Great, yeah. and start in August. Mm-hmm. And about two months in, I remember having the thought, if I didn't have a job waiting for me, I could see myself just staying here. Yeah. And I'm curious why you think that is, because I didn't I didn't foresee falling in love with that country that quickly or the way that I did. And I most certainly like uh, there's parts of my heart still that I feel like are there. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, you know, smell certain things or hear certain music, I'm like, Oh man, I gotta, now that I have a wife and kids, I like long to bring them to experience it, which I know will seem very different, you know, 12, 15 years later. But I'm curious what you think it is. That was that thing that once you got that, they're like, Oh, this is home for us. We're going to, we're going to stay here forever. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is for other people. Um, but for me, it was just this, um, you know, when you step off the plane, there's there's the sights and sounds and the smells and right. just every, you can't describe it. You really can't. And, unless you experience it. But once that, once I experienced that, it just gripped my heart. And mm. it might sound cliche or even just, you know, kind of corny, but I'm not sure how else to describe it. Yeah. India runs a campaign where, you know, commercials and they say incredible India. And it really is. Yeah. You've got the the beautiful mountains, you've got deserts, you've got oasis, you know, they've got, um, and the people, the culture, the colors, the foods, the smells, all of it. And it's just, uh, it just grabs you and, and it takes you in. Yeah. So I, I like I said, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, that's, you know, that did it. That's yeah. the deal. So here's a question for you then. I don't, you might not have an answer for it. My first, <laughs> my first day in Delhi, it was almost 120 degrees. Yeah. And one of the first things. It's a dry they, heat. It's a, yeah. it's a dry heat, right. Yeah, yeah that, that helps. That's what they say, right. Like an oven. So we got off the plane. Someone's like, oh, would you like some boiling hot chai? And I was like, why would I want boiling hot? Yes. 120 degrees. What is the thinking there? Like, it is so surprising to me yeah. how <laughs> frequent yeah. boiling hot beverages drank in the hottest temperatures I've ever lived in. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'll ever understand that. I mean. You go to a chai stall, and I can't even, I literally couldn't even grip the cup. Right. Because really? it's so hot. It's so I feel like my, my skin's just melting to the, to the cup. But yeah. 
Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, we'd always carry our water bottles around with us, and <laughs> right. people be like, "Why are you drinking all that water?" Well, well I see all this stuff running right. down. That's you know, a my billion body. degrees in right. here. That's actually to yeah. pour on my hands when you right. hand me the scalding hot tea. Right. Or well, I also didn't realize that chai isn't uh, universal in its flavor. Like when we oh. were in Missouri, which we've both been to, yeah. we went to a Tibetan settlement and they offered us some chai, and I was like, yeah. "Oh yeah, okay, I'm ready for some chai." And then they gave us Tibetan chai. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh, that's a very different beverage." Was it chai or yak butter tea? It was. It was definitely whatever the butter version was. Oh man, I, I mean, I, I love Tibetan culture and stuff, but I would never, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I'm sorry, but. I had no idea. Like, yeah. okay, give me some of that. Whoop, that's a different beverage. Yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. That's awesome. Uh, let me give you just some background here for Eric. If you want to reach out to him, you can do so over email. It is dish. That's d i s c h. That's d i s c h underscore forty one at yahoo.com that's dish underscore 41 at yahoo.com and i believe the website is www.missiondispatch.org that's right that's uh the organization that handles all of the financial administration yep there's a bio uh for our family on that page as well oh nice yeah so i know they're you know uh, always looking for prayer support and people to connect with so we'd encourage you uh, to do that. Just wondering if there's any way uh, people out there can be praying for you, the, thinking about you, you and your family. Uh, when do you head back? Kind of what's what's your future hold here? Yeah, we um, will be in the States till July 25th. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll head back over to Indonesia. And really what we're looking at this year, since we've got, my wife teaches uh, first grade. And, and like I said, I serve as a chaplain and a high school Bible teacher and, and various other um, capacities. We just went there to serve that community. Hmm. Um, um, and so we want to make sure that we are honoring uh, the opportunity we have. God, yeah. has, God has led us over there for this season. We want to make sure that we are um, honoring uh, him and bringing what those people need uh, during this time. And so, of course, uh, prayer is always Absolutely. Uh, uh, the foundation for all of that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would be great. All right, so like in 30 seconds or less, someone's listening, and they have been maybe for a while feeling this nudge mm. to do something like what you've been doing. Yeah. What, what would you say to them, someone who's maybe feeling it for the first time, or they've been sitting on it for a long time? What, what encouragement or challenge would you give to someone who's been wondering, maybe this kind of work is for me? I would say just do it. Yeah. Um, even if it comes down to uh, just picking a spot on a map and going, mm. do it, because as you as you move, then more things will open up for you. I, I really believe that. Yeah. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, this is our first time interviewing somebody from the, this far away doing this kind of work. And so, uh, yeah, when you're back in the States, we'd love to have you back in and uh, hear how things are going. So this is Eric Dish. Uh, you can find him again. You can email him at uh, dish underscore 41 at yahoo.com. And you can read more about him and his family at missiondispatch.org. Well, you're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. We want to end this day, this week, this Friday afternoon, the way we always do, with crazy things that not we have found on the internet, but Keith Conrad, our executive producer. And he's been really pushing the limits this week, I feel like. Which one do you think pushed the limits the most? Uh, Was it Ron Swanson drop earlier this week? Yeah, what did he say? Refresh my memory again. As my kids like to say, they say he said H E double hockey sticks. I oh, he did. Yes. We didn't play that over the air, though. Did I we? think we did. Oh goodness yes, gracious! We did. Yes. Oh, for shame! And we're still on the air. <laughs> 
So as this always works, we uh, seeing these right when you're seeing them. We are laughing They're with not you. Seeing them. They're on or hearing them. <laughs> We are laughing with you. We are crying with you. And uh, it is not our responsibility. Ian Simpkins, go first. Okay, this one's in Thailand. And uh, it says, Death Awareness Cafe puts customers in coffins to reflect on life. That's awesome. Count me out. (laughs) A cafe in Thailand is using a macabre gimmick to draw in customers, closing them in coffins after finishing coffee. The Death Awareness Cafe in Bangkok features mortuary-inspired decor and coffins placed for customers to spend time Closed inside after their per- uh, after they purchase their beverages, Viranut Rajanaprapa. Uh, I thought you were gonna f- I thought you were gonna fake that name. No Good way. Job. That was uh, that's close, right? The cafe's yes. owner said the purpose of the cafe is to inspire customers to reflect on their lives. He said the idea was inspired by Buddhist philosophy and is aimed at encouraging people not to be driven by greed. Our main goal is for the visitor to experience the death awareness when the. <laughs> Well, I don't. What was that? <laughs> when the lid of the coffin closes, their basic instincts will come up, and they will realize that eventually they cannot take anything with them. Death stalks <laughs> you at every turn, Grandpa. Well, it does. Ah, there, there it is. Death. It's only Maggie. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, at my age, the mind starts playing tricks. So, ah, death. <laughs> That's only the cat. Oh. Death! That's Maggie again, Grandpa. Oh, where were we? Death! <laughs> That's the longest Simpsons drop we've ever done. I feel like we gotta be warned. Now we gotta, when, when now we gotta be that rush. Long. Now yeah. we gotta rush. Pennsylvania bug bomb blamed for explosion inside Philadelphia home. A house in the Lawndale section of Philadelphia was damaged after an explosion on Tuesday. When they arrived, firefighters noticed the front of the house had a damaged window. No reports of injury. The woman who who lives in the home told Action News she saw a bug and told her husband to get a bug bomb. A short time later, there was an explosion after she said they used the bug bomb under the kitchen sink. She said they had never used a bug bomb before. The whole bomb, it just scared us. I thought the whole house blew up. It's not yet known what triggered the blast. However, Barbara said it may have been because she didn't turn the pilot light off the appliances. The only good bug is a dead bug. It's weird to me the parts that you choose to edit. I won't I won't make you say them. Nope. You edit out some of the most G-rated stuff. I do. Consistently. It's very strange to me. Yep. Okay. Colorado deputies release bear trapped in Colorado car. Authorities in Colorado shared video of a bear being released after climbing into a car and locking itself inside. The San Miguel 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 County Sheriff's Office said deputies responded alongside Telluride deputy marshals late Tuesday when a bear was found trapped inside a car after apparently opening the unlocked doors to get inside. The video shows the deputies using rope to open the car door from a safe distance and free the trapped Bruin. I tried to get an interview with him, but they said, nope, you can't do that. He's a live bear. He will literally rip your face off. <laughs> Germany, and you need the picture for this, German man no, cautioned for riding scooter in just a helmet and sandals as heat waves sweeps the country. And he does mean just yeah. a helmet and sandals. The unnamed man was pulled over after he was seen in Bradenburg wearing only his helmet and sandals. Officers tweeted an image of the man suggesting he had stripped off because of the hot weather. The police said they were speechless and asked Twitter users to suggest their own captions. That's dangerous. <laughs> it prompted laughs on social media with one concerned comment- commenter asking if the man was wearing sunscreen. <laughs> Another added, where did he keep his papers? <laughs> While a third suggested the man, quote, wanted to take a short break through the car wash. Officers agreed when one man said at least he had his helmet on. Look at me. I'm naked. <laughs> 
Never a dull moment here on the common good. All right, last but not least, Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Mississippi town commemorates alleged alien abduction with historical marker. Hmm. Historical marker has been placed near the river where two men in southern Mississippi said they were abducted by aliens in 1973. News outlets report the city of Pas... What's the word? Pascagoula? Pascagoula. 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 Dedicated the marker Saturday at Lighthouse Park. Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker said they were on the shores of Pascagoula. Pascagoula. <laughs> Never going to get that. <laughs> when what appeared to be aliens pulled them on board a UFO, examined them for about 30 minutes, and then returned them to Earth. Both reported the event to the Sheriff's Department and were checked out of the hospital after it happened October 11th, 1973. I bring you love. It's bringing love. Don't let it get away. Break its legs. Yeah! <laughs> Is that two Simpsons drops? I think it, at least. My the other goodness. one counts as two. The, the, so, yeah. Well, happy weekend, man. It's almost the 4th of July. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.